0: Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We are excited to continue on through our series through the Gospel of John. We are unpacking chapters 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. And what we've done is we've kind of packaged these three... Chapters, and we're calling it uh, revolutionary. That's what we're calling the series, and and what we're doing with that that title is we're really trying to um, show you how in these chapters Jesus comes across as a revolutionary. What we what we mean by that is Jesus really blindsided the first century world. I mean, he really destroyed the expectations of of many of his listeners in the first century world. We've seen this in kind of very abrupt encounters that Jesus has with individuals. We saw this with his mother uh, in John chapter 2. We saw this with Nicodemus, a religious teacher, in John chapter 3. We saw this with the crowd at the temple, uh, in the cleansing of the temple at the close of chapter 2. And so what we've seen is Jesus comes on the scene and really has to adjust and reorient many of the followers or the listeners that he had at that time because they just they just didn't realize what it truly meant to follow God. They had to make some adjustment. And Jesus makes this encounter and he is really revolutionary when it comes to their expectations. And we found it too that Jesus challenges us that we kind of have to make adjustments ourselves that if we have an honest encounter with Jesus through these chapters that we'll have to ask ourselves the question, how do I need to adjust what my understanding of what it means to follow God? And we're going to do that again in this chapter, in John chapter 3. We're going to see uh, Jesus, one of his uh, contemporaries and cousins, John the Baptist, is going to give a perspective that I think can really reshape our understanding of what it means to follow God. Now before we get there, I want to ask you this question. How good are you At taking the silver medal. How good are you at coming in second place? The silver medal, it's hard. It's hard to wear that medal. You see, the bronze is a little different. When you get on the podium, you think to yourself, well, I, I at least made it to, to be one of the best of the best. You, you got to the podium. You got up there with the greats. And so you're, you're kind of one who has achieved just to be at the top of whatever your skill is. The silver medal is a little harder because you could have been the best of the best. You could have held that title of being the, the preeminent one when it comes to your skill or whatever game you play. But you lost. As my grandpa says, second is really the first loser. Ouch. That hurts. It's, it's hard to be the silver medalist. You can, uh, you can imagine as, as the gold medalist is standing on the top of the podium and, 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 and the flag of his homeland is coming down, and, and, and his anthem is being played over the loudspeaker, and, and people are cheering. Imagine the things that he hears, just the esteem that he has, the worth that he feels. But you know what he doesn't hear? He doesn't hear the silver medalist next to him applauding him for his accomplishments. Because it's hard when you're, when you're upstaged by somebody. It's hard when you are outshined by somebody. It's hard to be second place. It's hard to get the silver medal. Because we believe that our joy is found in our worth. Our joy is found in our accomplishment. Our our joy, our our self-interest is self-promotion. That we feel in order to be happy, in order to be satisfied, we must lift ourselves up. Not lift somebody else up. But this is not the perspective of the Bible. This is not the perspective of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has a totally different perspective. He finds joy not in his self-worth. He finds joy in worship. He doesn't find joy in looking at the mirror. He finds joy in looking at Christ. He doesn't find joy in lifting himself up. He finds joy in lifting somebody else up. doesn't find joy in looking at himself, but in focusing on somebody else. And if we could take this same perspective, I think we'll truly find what it means to have real, lasting, and even eternal joy. So follow me. Let's go to John chapter 3. Let's look at this perspective from Jesus' cousin and one of his contemporaries, John the Baptist. And we could summarize John the Baptist's uh, perspective with today's big idea. We always like to have a a big idea that kind of summarizes what we're doing in our message, summarizes what the main idea of the passage that we're studying for the morning. So the big idea is this. This is is John the Baptist's perspective. So if you want to write this down on a napkin or uh, maybe you have a piece of paper or you just want to take a note on your phone, however you want to do that, the big idea is this. The best man has the best joy. The best man has the best joy. This is how John saw himself. He was the best man, not the groom. He was the best man and he had the best joy. When he was fulfilling that role, that's when he was most satisfied. See, oftentimes we are afraid to to always be the bridesmaid and never be the bride always be the groom or sorry the the uh, best man and never be the groom. We're always afraid of kind of playing second fiddle, always afraid of standing behind somebody, not being out in front, not shining, not taking the stage. but really, True joy and satisfaction is not found in self-worth or self-promotion. True joy is not found in thinking of yourself more or even thinking of yourself less, but actually thinking of yourself less, focusing on somebody else. True joy is not found in the mirror. True joy is found in worship. Let's just unpack this perspective from John the Baptist. This is John chapter 3. I'm going to pick up where we left off, and this is in verse 25, or actually verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, this is John the Baptist, not John the gospel writer. Sometimes we get confused, but this is John the Baptist, verse 23. John the Baptist was also baptizing at Anon in Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So just let's get the setting here. See the situation. What's happening is we have two kind of parties who are baptizing. We have John's group and we have Jesus' group. And so what John the gospel writer does is he kind of sets the scene for us. Here's what's happening. People are following John the Baptist, and people are following Jesus, and these groups are both baptizing. Then we get into this kind of um, unclear conversation, This, this, this strange debate that comes out. Look at verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, we really don't know what this discussion is. And John, the gospel writer, does not feel he needs to give us any more details. But I think some of the context kind of helps us understand what's going on. He's just mentioned, and I think it's significant that he does, he's just mentioned that baptism is happening. John is baptizing, Jesus is baptizing. And then there's this debate from John's disciples. They get in a debate with a Jew over purification, which could mean baptism. So my best guess is this Jew is who's speaking to John's disciples is probably mentioning something about baptism. Now, based on what's going to be said, my best guess here is that he is probably comparing the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of John, and he's not doing it in a very um, favorable way to John the Baptist. He's kind of saying, wow, look at this big crowd over here And look at this small crowd over here. Look at how the verses unfold, and I think that's the best explanation for what's going on here in this kind of debate and discussion that's happening. Look at verse 26. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. This is why I think what happened is this discussion arose comparing the baptism of John and Jesus. That's why John the Baptist's disciples rushed to John and they say, look at what this guy's doing. Everybody is going to him. Now, what do they mean by that? What's this report all about? Well, I think there's probably two possible readings of what's going on here. The disciples could be going to John saying, hey, John, you were right. If you remember from a couple uh, weeks ago, John the Baptist actually mentioned that Jesus would come. Somebody greater than him would come. He was unworthy to untie his sandals. And that this one would come, this, 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 this one that would follow him would come, and he would baptize with the Spirit. He is greater than him, and he baptizes with the Spirit. So maybe John's disciples are saying, hey, that guy, that guy you were talking about, the guy who you baptized and and you saw the Spirit of God fall upon him and remain on him, that one you talked about who was great, the one you called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, that one, look, you were right. He is now a rising star. I mean, he is trending on Twitter and TikTok and all the things, right? He, he is gaining followers so fast. You are right, John. You were right, Rabbi. Now, that's a very favorable, very kind reading of the passage, but I do not think that's the motivation of John's disciples. And, and the reason why is because Well, there's several reasons. One, there was this discussion or debate, it sounds like, over baptism. And usually, let's be honest, when you're in a debate or you're in a discussion and things get heated, right? you don't make the most uh, uh, kind uh, statements after that. I think things are a little heated here. And then I think another clue is how they end their statement off. Look at what it says. Look, look. Jesus is baptizing all. Look at verse 26. It says, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. All? Really? Everybody? Well, that can't be true. John the Gospel writer has said some are still going to John and some are going to Jesus. But now John's disciples say, look, everybody's over there. Why are they exaggerating? I think it's because they resent what's happening. And we'll see that makes sense further of what John is about to say. Their problem with Jesus is that, that Jesus is stealing the spotlight. Jesus is grabbing the gold medal. Jesus placing himself as the groom. He, he's placing himself up front. He's stealing the spotlight. So John's disciples, they, they've been following him. They've been listening to John. And they want John to be the one of prominence. And they're not okay with their leader being second place. They don't want to go to, a, to, to, to a, a rally saying, Yay, we're number two. We're number two. They don't want to do that. And so they tell John, John, you got to do something. This is not in your best interest. This is not what's good for you. This is not where your joy will be found. You need to promote yourself. You need to take center stage again. You need to demand the spotlight. You need to sing the solo. Don't let this teacher intrude on your popularity. We must step out. We must promote ourselves. Well, John the Baptist will not have that. That is not his perspective. His perspective is the best man has the best joy. He does not want to promote himself. He does not want to exalt himself. He does not want to make much of himself. Rather, he wants to promote Christ, exalt Christ, make much of Christ. And his greatest joy is not worrying about his self-promotion, not worrying about if he's trending or not, not worrying about if he's worthy of people's attention anymore. He's not even thinking of himself. He is forgetting himself. And he is focusing on Christ. This has been his pattern already. John the Baptist has already actually given some of his followers over to Jesus. When he says, and he, when he sees Jesus, he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then it says some of John's disciples left him. They left him to be with Jesus. And John is okay with this. John is totally fine stepping back. He's totally fine taking one step down off the podium. He's fine in being the best man. That's where his joy is. Look at his response, verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourself bore witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I am not the hero. I am not the Messiah. I am not the one promised in the Old Testament to bring God's people back to himself. I'm not the one you've been waiting for. I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John knows his, assi- his assignment. He says it's been given to him from heaven. God has given me my assignment. God has given me my role. This is a theme that is just littered throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, all the things written before Jesus. In the New Testament, everything written after Jesus, about the time of Jesus. We see it all throughout Scripture that God is the one who plans the assignments. Nobody takes a role that he doesn't first give them. John, the gospel writer, the, the gospel that we're reading, he'll, he'll show us this point on the lips of Jesus right before Jesus is crucified. Look at this in John chapter nineteen verse eleven when jesus's kind of fate is in the hands of somebody else when Jesus is at his weakest hour, it looks like when he's when he's about to succumb to this to this plot, this political plot of the Jews pressuring the Romans to assassinate to kill jesus there's this trial that is just a a, a kangaroo court it's it's complete foolishness, and in this interaction that Jesus has with conscious Pilate, look at what he says in verse 11. This is what Jesus says. This is what John records Jesus saying, verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. John has the same mentality of his cousin Jesus. He says, look, no assignment is taken by man all the assignments are handed out by god if god didn't want you in a certain role then you would not have that role it is god the sovereign one who is over all of history he is the one who is determining things and john is submitting to god's sovereign plan he says look heaven has given me a role Heaven has decided what my job is. And my job is not to be the Christ, to be the hero, to not be the groom. My job is to be the best man. My job is to promote Christ. He actually uses this illustration, this wedding illustration, in the next verse. Look at verse 29. It says, the one whom has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, this is a very, very just significant illustration here, but it's really lost on us as as modern 21st century readers. First off, we don't know the cultural custom, or uh, we don't practice it now, what's illustrated here. And we may not see the rich, actually, Old Testament background that's being displayed here with this analogy of the bride and the groom. But let's just look at the cultural background. And this is going to sound very odd, but it was something very common in Jewish marriage ceremonies. Okay, let's, let's read the verse again, just to kind of get a full picture of what's going on. Because John wants to illustrate, this is my role, this is my assignment. I've been called by God the Father. He asked me to be the best man. That's what he's saying. He assigned my role. And look at how he describes it. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. What is he saying? I am not the, the groom. I'm not the bridegroom. I don't have the bride. I'm the friend, the friend of the bridegroom. Now, this is where it gets a little strange, okay? I'm going to unpack this for you. It may feel a little weird, and if you are about to get married, or you're thinking of getting married, right, or you're recently married, you're probably thinking to yourself, there is no way... I would have ever done this or will ever do this. And you are probably right because it sounds very strange, but it is a very rich illustration, okay? So let me give you the background. And it's going to feel a little awkward. To the 21st century American mind, this is a very awkward statement about to be made, but it was very common in the first century world. It says, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What is he talking about there? why is the best man hearing the voice of the groom what 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 is he talking about is he talking about the correspondence is he is he talking about when the groom actually said hey will you be my best man is that the voice he's talking about no that's not what he's talking about see in the first century the groom or the sorry the best man had a responsibility his responsibility was to lead the groom to the bridal chamber. So his job was to kind of take the groom to his bride and lead them into the room where they would consummate the marriage. So he's kind of leading them to their honeymoon suite, if you want to use a 21st century word. He leads them to the honeymoon suite. He shuts the door. Now here's where it gets strange. And then he stands outside the door and he listens for the groom's voice, his shout, his exaltation, as a symbol and, and kind of a, a, a an indication that this groom has married a virgin bride, that she is everything that she said she was, that she represented herself to be. And the groom takes joy in his new bride and the shout of exaltation is an indication to the best man standing outside the room that everything is okay, things are good, this union has been consummated. Now again, I know that sounds very strange and I'm not recommending that you do that. This is a description, not a prescription. This is describing what happened, not telling you what should happen. Now the role would actually go further. Now the best man's job, after standing outside of the bridal chamber, is to then go back into the festival, and basically the party, so you think uh, uh, back in whatever the hall that they're having the, 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 the celebration at, and his job is to kind of stop the DJ, right, to hit the record, right, and then to announce to the audience, to the families that are there, that he heard the shout of the groom, and that the marriage has been consummated. And then the party erupts after that. It's like the beat drops and everybody goes crazy. Now again, that sounds incredibly strange to us. But we got to take a step back to not just the cultural background. There's a scriptural background here that is very, very rich. You see, one of God's favorite ways to describe his relationship with his people is the marriage relationship. In fact, one of the number one ways he talks about sin, the thing that breaks that relationship, he speaks of sin as adultery, the breaking of a marriage vow. So one of God's favorite illustrations to describe his love for his people is a marriage relationship. In the book of Isaiah, it says, just as the groom rejoices over his bride, so too God rejoices over his people. And John is saying something very significant here. When he uses this kind of illustration, he's not only giving clarity as to what he believes his assignment is, that he is the best man, but he's also making a very large statement about who Jesus is. He is saying, Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the husband. To who? To the people of God. Look at this passage in the Old Testament, just to show you how rich this language is and how rich this kind of illustration, analogy is from John the Baptist. This is in Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. The prophet Hosea is trying to encourage his people because the northern kingdom is about to be taken away by the Assyrians. Foreigners are going to come in and they're going to rip the God's people, at least the northern kingdom, out of the promised land. And why is that? Because God is using the Assyrians as a, as a, as a tool of judgment upon his people. Why? Because his people have committed adultery. They've sinned against him. They've worshipped other gods. It's like they've found another lover. They've left God. They've left Yahweh. They've left their true husband. And they've explored another relationship with Baal as the specific idol that's going to be mentioned here. But Hosea is saying, God will come for you again. And he will call himself husband. And he will betroth himself to you forever. And this is what the people of God were waiting for before Jesus ever came. Ever since Assyria came in and took the northern tribes and then when the Babylonians came in and they took uh, Judah and they took the southern tribes, this kind of prophecy had been ringing in their ears as a sense of anticipation of what God would do, the new work he would do for his people. Look at how he describes it. And then think of what John the Baptist is trying to bring to the mind of his hearers, his disciples. Verse 16 of Hosea chapter 2, it says this, in that day, the great day where God will do his new work in bringing his people back, declares the Lord, I will call, you will call me husband, and no longer will you call me Baal, meaning you're not going to use, you're not going to pretend like you're loving me and speaking another name. You're going to use my name. You're not going to call another name, verse 17, for I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. I'm going to take away your lovers that you have committed adultery, idolatry with. He says, I'm going to make you, in a sense, monogamous again. It's only me. It's only you. And I am husband and you are my bride. Verse 19. or Sorry, 18. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the spear, or sorry, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. What is he talking about there? He says animals aren't going to steal your crops anymore. Right? Nature is going to work correctly. And I'm going to take war out. He's, He's speaking about this new work where he'll bring his people to a place of rest in safety. No more conflict, no more pain, no more agony. They're under the provision and protection of their new husband. Verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. An eternal marriage. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy verse 20 i will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the lord so what is john the baptist saying he's not just trying to get them to understand how much joy he gets in seeing people come to jesus seeing people come to follow jesus seeing people to see jesus as the hero and the Messiah, he's saying, I, I love my role of being the best man. He's also making this very profound statement that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one they've been waiting for. The, this new wedding day that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 2 is now commencing right now. God's people are coming back to their husband. They're, they're coming back to him. And who's the husband? Who's the groom? It's Jesus Christ, he is God, the husband. This is a profound statement that I believe John and I believe the first century hearers of John's words would have picked up on. John's just not using this analogy because it has cultural background. He's using this analogy because it has scriptural background. And therefore, verse 30, he says, I must, or sorry, he must increase and I must decrease. All right, this is the role of the best man. No, my, my, my job is to, to hold the ring, not to wear the ring, right, to, to, to give it to the one doing the ceremony, to assist the one solemnizing these vows. My job is to be there for the groom, be there for my friend, to make sure everything right Happens. My job is to lead him to his bride, for him to enjoy that bride. And when I hear the enjoyment, my joy is now full, even though the best man is not enjoying a bride. He's not the one who is solemnizing these vows. He's not the one entering into a relationship. He's just watching his friend do it. He's watching the groom do it. But what does John say? This is my joy. I'm fine stepping out of the spotlight. I'm fine moving to the side. I'm fine stepping down the podium. I'm fine to listen to somebody else's national anthem play. I'm fine when I watch his flag of his homeland come down. I'm fine not hearing any cheers Or any applause for me because my joy is not in self-promotion. In fact, let me decrease and find even more joy as I decrease. As people ascribe to me less worth, less value, less attention, less affection. As I'm on my way down, I will find joy. Why? Because Christ is being promoted. He's being exalted. Much is being made of him. Now this next little paragraph here, John the gospel writer is going to step in. So he's going to kind of step in and as the author give comment to this historical event that's happening. He he did this before. He did this before at the tail end of the discussion with Nicodemus. We saw this in chapter 3 where Nicodemus has a conversation with Jesus, and then John, the gospel writer, kind of steps in as the author and explains the significance of what was just said. This is the same thing happening, and here's what he's going to do. John, the gospel writer, is trying to lift this story out for us and then apply it to us. What he's saying is we should have the same perspective. If we want the best joy, we need to be okay with being the best man, Because it's only being a best man that will have the best joy. It's only when we look at Christ and look at the cross and not the mirror. It's only when we look up and not in that mirror looking at ourselves, trying to give ourselves some sense of worth. It's only in worship that we find joy, not in self-worth. Rather, it's forgetting ourselves, looking away from ourselves. Not even thinking about ourselves, acting for ourselves, promoting ourselves, seeking self interest. It's in worship that's where we find joy. It's hearing the anthem and the applause for Christ and not ourselves. Look at how he describes it. Here's what John's going to do. As he kind of unpacks and speaks and kind of gives his comment on this historical situation, he's going to kind of do two movements here. Twice, he's going to bring attention to who the groom is, bring attention to who Christ is. So he's kind of lifting us up, getting us ready for a response. So he'll make a comment about the greatness of Christ, and then there will be a response. The first response is rejection. Then he lifts up Christ again, and the second response is acceptance to receive Christ, and that's where joy is found. So look at this. Look at John's comment, and he's what he's doing, he's inviting all of us to step in to see the groom, and to see him and therefore, therefore find joy in him. So look, he's going to lift him up. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. This is Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and speaks in it an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. What's that statement saying there? This is a comparison that John the Gospel writer is doing between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one spoken of as the one of who earth, or sorry, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth. This is John the Baptist. He's saying, look, he's not speaking in a bad way about John. He's not belittling John. He's just saying, John was was human. John was earthly. He was faithful, but he was earthly. But there is one from above. And the one from above is greater than the one of the earth. This is very similar to what John would say. We saw this in uh, previous weeks where John says, the one who comes after me is before me. Right? That Christ is before me. He existed before me. He is not like me. He existed before me. Look at verse 32. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives him. This is where John the Gospel writer is showing the unique nature of who Jesus is. It says he bears witness to what has been seen and heard, or what he has seen and heard. He's speaking, look, John the prophet, John the Baptist, could speak because God gave him revelation as he was here on earth, but Jesus Christ is different. He's a spokesman for God, but he's also God. He came from heaven. He has seen things that no prophet has ever seen. He's experienced things that no prophet has ever experienced. He's been in the very inner room of intimacy between the triune God as one of the members of the Trinity. He has seen, heard, and experienced things that no one ever has. So when he speaks, he reveals beyond what anybody else ever has. He is the prophet par excellence. He he is the, the magnified one when it comes to giving the message of God. But look at the response, verse 32. Yet no one receives his testimony. Now, I think John the Gospel writer is is using literary hyperbole here. This is an exaggeration. Okay, of course, it, it cannot mean that no one ever received Jesus. That wouldn't work. We wouldn't have this church, right? We wouldn't have this Gospel or the Scriptures. He's not taking it that far, but I think what he's saying is it's shocking to see how this wonderful prophet who has come from above has not been received. How people are not applauding for this this groom. How they're not rejoicing and worshiping him. It says he is not received. John said the very similar thing, but then said that people did receive them. We saw this in John chapter 1 in in verse 11. It says he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. You You see how he did that, the contrast there? He says, yes, most did not. But, but some did. That's what he's doing here again. He's going to say in the next verse, some did receive him. And look, he's going to again lift up Jesus Christ and then show us the true response we should have, just like John the Baptist did. And how in that response we will find great joy. Look at verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, For he, and this is God the Father, he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What is he describing here? He's speaking about what God the Father gives to the Son. It says he gives him the Spirit without measure. What does that mean? I think what he's doing is he's trying to elevate again this kind of office of prophet. John was a prophet, but Jesus was a, a prophet above that. He spoke the words of God. He spoke the words of God as God, as the one from above. And then it also says that, that God gives him, God the Father gives him the spirit without measure. We see in the Old Testament that God oftentimes will give his spirit to prophets. It said that the spirit will come upon them and they'll prophesy. Right? Or they'll do a, a mighty work of God. We see that rhythm mentioned, that description mentioned all throughout the Old Testament in, when it comes to prophetic activity. The Spirit of God falls on them. You see, but it, it wasn't a, a permanent dwelling on people. It wasn't on them at all times. It didn't remain on them like John the Baptist says the Spirit did after he baptized him, that he saw the Spirit of God remain on him. This is what's being described here. The Father gives the Spirit without measure. The Spirit is always in communion with Christ, never retreating from Him, but always being with Him. He is the greatest prophet. It says also, beyond that, He says, the Father has given Him all things into His hands. Wow, I mean, what more... Can you say, John's going to illustrate this later in chapter 5 when he speaks about how Christ has been given authority to judge the world, how how Christ has the power to resurrect. What is he saying? Look at how wonderful this groom is. So what should our response be? To honor him, to, to, to promote him, to exalt him, to make much of him. And that is where we will find our greatest joy, an eternal joy. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If we believe, if we obey, if we worship this Son, we receive eternal life. Eternal life in the gospel of John, on the lips of Jesus, and in in the teachings of Jesus' first century followers that would give us the scriptures, eternal life is not, don't just think life after death. That's not a good way to understand eternal life. The idea of eternal life is a present reality that is fully enjoyed in the future. There's present satisfaction that happens when we gain eternal life upon believing and obeying Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are given eternal life. We experience eternal life now, and we will fully experience that eternal life in the after. That's what he's saying. And this is great joy. What greater gift can you get than eternal life? not just a description of the quantity of your life, right, that the pages will never end. That doesn't work in a biblical worldview. Everyone in that sense has eternal existence. We all will exist eternally, but some will have eternal life. There's a big difference. When the Bible describes eternal life, it's speaking of communion with God Being with our creator, existing with him, dwelling with him, remaining with him. To be apart from God or separated from his love is to have eternal death. That's eternal existence, but it is not eternal life. But this is breaking into the present now. That heaven, in a sense, this communion with God is breaking into the presence now. That we can now, in the present, experience eternal life. No matter what's going on in our life, nothing can take eternal life from us. We could lose our physical life. Our life could get harder. Suffering could become greater. But nothing will it take our eternal life, our communion with God. God abiding with us and us abiding in Him. What a great joy. The best man has the best joy. John the Baptist was totally fine taking a step back. Totally fine not being promoted. Totally fine hearing another anthem played. Totally fine hearing cheers for somebody else. In fact, it gave him the greatest joy to see Christ glorified. Now, I'll have to admit, this passage has been incredibly convicting to me this week. And let me tell you why. You see, four months ago, I got a new assignment from heaven, as John the Baptist would say. A a new assignment to be the lead pastor at Valley Bible Church. And I was excited, and I was honored. Uh, it, it, it was a dream, it becoming a reality. It, w- it, it, it was new, it was fresh. It, it, felt, it felt like I was stepping onto that, that, that podium. Right, that, that, that platform. That's something that I had uh, uh, aspired to, to get to. And then on March 15th, just one day after my birthday, we were supposed to have this installation service, you know, this is the celebration of this new assignment that God had for me and my family. And that Sunday was the first Sunday we had to close everything down. And we've been meeting online, preaching to a camera in an empty room, seeing you only a couple times in the parking lot when we did a prayer night, we did a worship night and those were great. But this week it hit me. I don't know why it was this week. Maybe four months is just as long as I held it together. But I realized that that this season, this time, this transition was just so disappointing and discouraging. To not see you, to not be able to minister you like I would like. And I just kind of got down, and I got kind of sad, and I got kind of depressed, and I got discouraged, and I got frustrated. And then I read this passage, and it's as if God was saying to me through his living word through this passage, okay, Paul, you didn't get the celebration you wanted, but is that why you're here? And then this penetrating question came to my mind. Can you promote my son when you're not promoted? Can you make much of him when much is not being made of you? Can you increase him when you are decreasing? When it's not a good season for you, can you still boast in Christ? When, when, when the spotlight's not on you, when things aren't going as they should, when the story's not being written as you would have it to be written, can you still make much of Christ? See, I was having a problem being the best man. You know, if and if I'm honest, I still have a problem taking the best man role and not being able to step into that groom role. Right? To, to, to be in the center. To be in the spotlight. To have things go as, as I would have want them to go and dream they would go. I've had a problem with my role of being a best man. But that's the assignment where I find my greatest joy. And maybe you're having that same struggle right now. Maybe you can identify with what I'm saying. Maybe maybe your relationships are falling apart. Your emotional health is decaying. Your finances are dwindling. Your marriage is, is, is not holding up. Your career path has been totally sideswiped. And right now, it is not a good season for you. I think all of us would echo that with a large amen. This is not a good season for us. We are not increasing. We are decreasing. So here's my question to you. Same question that I felt given to me after reading this passage. Can you promote the sun when you're not being promoted? When you're decreasing, when you're suffering, when you're losing, when the spotlight's not on you anymore, when the applause has ended, when the comforts of life are ceasing, when those around you are pulling away from you, when you can't seem to look in the mirror and get a positive feeling about yourself, when your self-esteem and your self-worth seems to be unraveling, can you still make much of Christ? I think we all know the answer is yes, we can. Yes, we can. When we are decreasing, He can increase. When we are suffering, we can still, still glorify him. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to find one person. Just one person. It could be your husband, your wife, your kids, co-workers, your neighbor, socially distanced. Just find one person. And share with them the great joy you have in the eternal life you have received from Christ. Don't give them a false sense of joy. Oh, I'm happy my bank account's good. I'm happy my health as well. I'm happy. No, 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 no. That's not what I, those things could, could go away tomorrow. All those things could fall apart Tomorrow. Tell them the joy you have in the only thing that's permanent, the only thing that will last, the only thing that's satisfying, the only thing that will make it past death. And that is your eternal life given to you in Jesus Christ. Find one person this week, just one. Tell them the joy you have in Christ, that He has given you eternal life. Now, maybe you're listening to this in and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you're starting to explore spiritual things because, well, everything is chaos, and you think, I've got to try something. Friend, I want to talk to you, just just very specifically to you, just one-on-one, if you will. I know in life, we often feel that if we don't fight for ourselves, nobody will. Right, if we don't, fight for our joy, then nobody will. If we don't try to get ours, then nobody will give us any. If we don't look out for number one, then we'll never be number one. Then we'll never have what we need. And so we, we, we put ourselves in the ring and we, we fight for our joy, and we, we we try to actualize all that potential that, that resides within us, and we, we keep staring at the mirror, trying to speak good words to ourselves about our achievements, the appraisal of our behavior, and trying to say all of our performance is going to make us more valuable, more, more worthy. We're going to be something and, and be someone, and oftentimes we look for that joy right Here on the horizontal, looking into the mirror, saying you're worth something, you're valuable. Can I just tell you that pursuit will wear you out? And you'll never find what you're looking for. You'll never find joy in the pursuit of self worth. No achievement will be enough, no accomplishment will be enough. No promotion will do it. No accolade will fill the hole. The burning desire inside of you for something more satisfying than yourself. If you keep looking this way, it'll never work. Because what you're looking for is someone to worship. And you're not good enough for your worship. You were created to worship. And if you keep worshiping in the mirror, you'll only be disappointed. You have to look up. And when you see Christ, the one in beautiful obedience who who never sinned or erred in any way, But pursued a life of suffering, a moment of death and agony under the hand of God the Father for our sins. Then resurrected from the grave as the victorious one. When you see Him, you'll forget about yourself. You won't want to look in the mirror. You won't think about self-worth, self-esteem. You won't think about performance and accolades. You'll just say, applaud him. Give him the gold. Give him the silver. Give him the bronze. Give him all of this stuff. And you'll find great joy in that. You won't be in agony hoping that you could outperform him. You'll say, nobody can. In fact, every time I've failed, every time I've fallen short, and been disappointed in myself. He has taken that regret, shame, and that burden, bore that burden on himself on the cross for our sin and rose from the grave and now extends to us, hey, all of that is gone. All your shame, all your regret, all your sin, all your failures, everything, I've taken it away. And what I've given you is more than just any achievement that you could do. I've given you my achievements. I've given you my righteousness. Now you have my title. I've given you my medal, in a sense. And when God the Father sees you, he now calls you what he calls me, and that's righteous. When you see that one, you'll worship You'll worship, and until you see Christ, you will not be satisfied. And so, my prayer for you today is that you would see Christ in His death and resurrection as the only one worthy of your affection, the only one deserving of your obedience, the only one who you should worship. He's the one who can free you from your sin, free you from your self-centeredness. And give you true and lasting joy. I pray you come to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that we can call you Father. We can call you husband. As Hosea said, we've been reunited. Brought back to you. We are the bride that you enjoy. Father, it is the most satisfying of relationships to be in union with you. Father, I pray that we realize in the midst of all of this chaos, all of the craziness, all of the shifting sand of our times, Father, that there's one thing that will always last and it's the gift you've given us in Jesus Christ and that is eternal life. It gives us joy for now and great joy for later. Father, I pray that you'd help us feel that. Help us feel it when our finances are failing. When our kids are struggling with distance learning. When our jobs have put us on furlough. When we get a test and it's positive, And we fear what it means for us and for those around us and those we've been around. Oh, Father, would you press into our hearts at the very center of who we are, the center of our thinking and our emotion, that you have given us a gift that can never be taken away, the gift of eternal life. And Father, for those who don't yet know you, who wouldn't call you Father yet, who are maybe, as they've listened to this message, realize that they're working for joy in self-worth and they haven't found it yet. Father, I hope they realize that they'll never find it there. They find joy in worship and seeing Christ the exalted one, the Groom the one who has the bride, the one who has the moment, who has the stage, who has all the glory. Oh, Father, I pray that they would come to you, realize their sin and their failure, the breaking of the law that they have done, your law. I pray they'd see the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as their only means of forgiveness, and I pray they would follow you today. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again next week.